Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the PTA Elevation Podcast, where we help physical therapist assistant students pass the NPTE on the first try without wasting time or money. To learn more about the services we offer, find us on Facebook by searching PTA Board Study Group or fill out the form linked in the description. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's podcast. guys this is part two of our emerging conditions go watch part one if you haven't watched it yet um these are just common conditions that we would see on the boards that would elicit a question that kind of asks about safety because remember the boards is a safety test so let's get into the rest of these conditions that could show up on the npte first thing is a seizure so there's different types of seizures that we would see and this is um various different types. The board's probably going to focus more on this tonic clonic, which would be like a grand mal seizure, which is like what we would think of with somebody like losing consciousness, convulsing and everything. Um, and then an absence seizure is also called a petite mal, which is where they're just like staring blankly into space kind of thing. And they're having a seizure and it looks like they're just spacing out. It's kind of weird, but um, just to make sure we're kind of keeping an eye on what's going on. A lot of times if the patient is prone to having seizures, they're on some sort of seizure medication and it should be in the past medical history that we're aware of. Um, the seizures that we should be extremely, extremely concerned about are the ones that just appear out of nowhere or any seizures following like a concussion or something. So some symptoms that we would see with a seizure that we would start being concerned about and that the boards would probably describe would be like a convulsion, like this grand mal convulsion seizure. They lose consciousness, those jerky motions, or maybe they're just becoming like flaccid and just like look like they're like a dead fish on the ground kind of thing, essentially, and then lose a lot of muscle tone. So those are some things that we would see that we'd be very concerned about because this patient is essentially going to fall over and they're going to be on the ground kind of thing. So that's when we start getting extremely concerned. So what are we doing in this situation? Um, the first thing we want to do is make sure that the patient is safe and don't try to stop the seizure at all. Let them seize it out. So make sure that we're removing things around um, so then they don't hurt themselves and stuff like that. So if there's chairs near them, get those out of the way kind of thing. If there's people around, clear the area, let the person just convulse and everything, get it done. And then we're going to work. We're going to turn them on their side afterwards. So we want to make sure everyone's out of the way. Cause the number one thing is to make sure you're not getting whacked in the face. And then you're the, let's say you're the only therapist in the area in the facility, because you could be working in a facility where you're the only one there right now. Um, and you're knocked out. So then we got two people knocked out on the ground because you got knocked out by the patient convulsing. That doesn't help anyone. We want to make sure it's like not many, not more people are going to get injured. So keep everything out of the way. Um, don't place anything in their mouth. There used to be like some old wives tale or something like that, that uh, patients would bite off their own tongue while seizing while they could possibly do that. And they said like, put a spoon in their mouth to prevent them from happening. If you try to put a spoon in their mouth, they're going to break their teeth and they got even more problems. And then you're going to get sued for some sort of dental work and stuff like that. We don't want to do that. Don't put anything in their mouth. Do not put your hand in your mouth in their mouth because it'll, they'll chop it right off. Like it's a carrot. 
don't do that. Again, don't touch the patient, stay back. We only want one person in trouble in the situation. We don't want more than one. So um, once they're done with their seizure, you're gonna turn them onto their side. So that's just a side instead of size, they should turn them onto their side. So in case they vomit, um, we wanna monitor their airway. And if they stop breathing at any point, we're calling 911. Now, generally I would say for my own personal opinion with first aid that we should call 911 if there's no prior history of seizures, there's a prior history and it lasts like less than a minute we would monitor the patient, but in the case of the boards, it would be something like very obvious that this is an abnormal situation. They wouldn't do any of those like weird kind of iffy situations. It's going to be pretty black and white when it comes to the boards, essentially bigger things, remove things around them, turn them on their side. Don't put anything in their mouth. And if there's any sort of respiratory involvement, we are going to call 911 and then follow like the CPR and uh, rescue breathing kind of stuff we learn in our first aid classes. And everybody should be first aid, CPR, and AED certified essentially to work at any clinic that treats Medicare patients. So a lot of this is going to be some repeats from emergency situations we learned in first aid. So if you don't have your stuff yet, I would definitely look at that and getting on that. So heart attack, cardiac arrest, there is another video about myocardial infarctions. Check out that video as well. That's going to go over a lot of things that have to do with the pathology of why it happens. But this is if we're seeing somebody already have one in the clinic. So what's going on? The pain radiant to the left arm, neck, and jaw area is like the big one. Squeezing pain in chest, that elephant sitting on my chest, nausea, vomiting, swelling, pallor, any sort of cardiac arrhythmias could be a uh, tachycardia, essentially, uh, increase in blood pressure. So their blood pressure shooting through the roof, lightheadedness, dizziness, and understanding that this might present differently in women. Um, and it might just be like some back pain or something like that, but being aware of seeing all these signs put together, we're seeing it's probably a heart attack. You have to recognize that and then act accordingly. So if the patient's in full cardiac arrest, they will not have a pulse or be breathing. So they could just immediately snap down and be on the floor and have no pulse, or they could start developing these symptoms and it's kind of the more insidious onset. And you know what? We roll the dice when we have a heart attack. We don't know which one we're gonna get. So being aware of the symptoms early so we can intervene as early as possible. First thing that we're gonna do, and the board likes to quiz you on this, is if you see somebody who's having a heart attack, make sure they're conscious first. So go do the tap and shout, are you okay? And if they're not okay and they're not calling them and they're not responsive or anything, you're going to first step one, tell somebody to call 911 because before anything else happens, we need to make sure EMS is on the way because we just know enough not to kill them. Um, they know enough to save their life. So first call 911, get them on the way. The second thing you're going to do is after you, you essentially just point to two people, tell one person call 911. Then the second person you're telling them get the AED, so the external, the automatic external defibrillator. Um, then after you've told these two people, do this, do that, start CPR. So first, see if they're conscious, then ask somebody to call 911, then ask somebody to get the AED, then start CPR. You are going to continue CPR until EMS arrives. And if you're the only one there and EMS is 30 minutes away, you're going to keep going as long as you possibly can. So the boards isn't going to quiz you on that, but in a real life situation, you are literally going to perform CPR until you were at like physical exhaustion. If you're the only one there doing it. Um, 
and that's about what goes on with that. But you're just going to switch up with people every couple rounds of CPR. You switch to another person, follow all the things that are in the um, basic life support, American Red Cross, whatever first aid you took your first aid course through, follow all those instructions, listen to the AED as instructed. They'll tell you when to shock the patient. If there should shock the patient, they'll analyze their rhythm and stuff like that. Stay away from the patient if they're being shocked. Everybody be like, hands up, back up, stay away because you don't want to get shocked as well. And as I said before, we only want the one person in trouble in this situation. We don't want to add extra people to the trouble. So with a concussion, what is this looking like? So this is if you had a mild traumatic brain injury and mild is deceiving. It's still a traumatic brain injury. You still have messed up your brain. We got to be careful because there's long-term effects of this. So the biggest thing we're going to see is memory loss. Like all of a sudden they're like, I don't remember what happened for like five minutes after I hit my head. That's a little confusing. Loss of consciousness. Like I passed out for a little bit. Vision changes. Oh, everything got blurry. Headache. My head really hurts. Sensitivity to light or noise. And this is like more so than like a normal, like, ah, that was really bright. Like, it's like, I can't be out in the light. They're getting a migraine. It's bad. Nausea and vomiting. And then any sort of difficulty performing coordinated movements, that's really the main reason why, besides the fact that the brain is hurt, that we really don't want people who've had a concussion returning to sport. So essentially what happens is you are not to exercise until you are cleared by a physician. We may have no decision-making in this. It's like weight-bearing precautions. We have no decision-making in that. That is all up to somebody with a bunch more letters and schooling behind their name. That is not our decision. That is up to the doctor. So um, we're not going, they're probably going to tell them, take it easy for a couple of days. Then we can return to doing some light activity. Now, if we notice a patient has had a concussion and we see any of the following symptoms, this is where we're like, ooh, this is a big old red flag blaring in my face. Let's call EMS services because this would be indicative of like a brain bleed, um, any sort of brain swelling and stuff like that. Bad things that could cause brain death. That's why we got to be careful. So big thing is if one pupil starting to get a lot bigger than the other, or we're not seeing a pupillary like reflex on the one side, that means the brain's like dying. So um, yeah, EMS needs to be called immediately. Headache that's getting progressively worse. Again, this could be indicative of, of brain bleed or any sort of swelling bad, nonstop nausea or vomiting. Generally, if you're losing bodily fluids, this is a sign of some sort of upper motor neuron problem. Um, and that includes nausea, vomiting, loss of urine, incontinence, stuff like that. Really bad. We're, we're getting this checked out immediately. I'm talking like call 911, or if you're in the hospital, you're getting nursing and the physician on board immediately. Um, severe personality changes. So this is like, if like one minute they're like super cool and the next they're like super agitated and stuff. And they're seeing these wide shifts in behavior. That's also indicated indicative of some sort of, um, traumatic brain injury, progression, regression kind of thing going on. Remember our confused, agitated, our stage four and their TBI, uh, Regislos Amigos levels of cognitive functioning, they've regressed to kind of that. That's not good at all. Um, worsening confusion, forgetting things, the seizures, as I mentioned before, rewind this video, what, five minutes and check out seizures and see what's going with that. And then any sort of loss of consciousness. So they're passing out and stuff like that. That's also really bad. So essentially with a lot of these situations, guys, as I was saying before, this is just like our big red flags for safety. Who do we call? What do we do in this situation to be as safe as possible and get the patient the most appropriate care? Obstructive airway. So this is one that throws a lot of people off. So the patient's essentially choking on something. Um, if they can speak, here's the big thing. If they're able to speak to you, like if you're like choking on something and they're like, <coughs> you okay? 
and they're like still talking, but they're like coughing and stuff like that and making sounds like tell them like, okay, man, like keep coughing. You got this, like get it out. Come on, let's go. And you're going to stay near them very, very close. And you're going to be like, you good, bro. See if they clear it out. And then if they stop making sounds and they're like, then we're like, okay, they're like really, really choking. And then that's when we intervene. So we don't touch the patient until their airway is completely obstructed. So first you're asking the patient if they're choking, they are like, they'll be like, most people, if they're choking, they're going to do the I'm choking kind of sign sort of thing. Cause that's like pretty much like, oh yeah. So if they are choking, we're calling 911 just in case I always say call 911 just in case that we don't get the, um, and the, the first aid and CPR all teaches us emergency interventions teaches you this as well call 911 if their airway becomes obstructed at any point and this is because if you don't get the um obstruction out before the person passes out um then you're stuck doing cpr and stuff like that so i would say call 911 immediately and then um that's where you're checking to see if there's anything in their mouth like maybe it could be like they're actually there's something there and they can't pull it out maybe you could get it out or something like that but for the most part we're gonna start like heimlich maneuver so just abdominal thrust because we're getting away from everything being named after some dude so abdominal thrust you start so it's where you have the fist you put your hand over it you put it right above their navel and it's going to say the umbilicus or navel and you're going to do upright quick thrusts about five of them um, and then you're going to see if you can dislodge the um, whatever's in there you're going to keep doing that and with some they also say do some back blows as well but uh, if you can get the abdominal thrust to get it out that works as well um if they collapse you're going to start rescue breathing and chest compression so essentially you're doing cpr on them um and that's because they once you stop breathing your heart pulse is the next thing to go if the victim is a child so all i said before was for a regular old adult the victim is a child you're going to flip them prone like on your knee or something like that you're going to do back blows on them so you're going to hit them right in between the shoulder blades with the heel of your hand um, you're going to back close between the shoulder blades, and then you're going to do finger chest compressions to try to get whatever is in there out. So you're going to keep doing that. Um, and again, if the child's unconscious, you're probably asking the parent if they're right there, like, yo, can I, can I, and they'll probably be like, they're probably hysterical and be like, please do anything possible help and blah, blah, blah. So that's what we're doing. If it's a child, if the pr- victim is pregnant or a very large person that doing abdominal thrust is unrealistic on this individual, you're going to do the thrusts on like right in the middle of their chest, make sure you're high enough that you're not hitting the xiphoid process. And then you're going to, if they collapse or something like that, you're going to be doing chest compressions in supine. So essentially that's what's going on. If someone's choking. Next thing is an allergic reaction. So this could be just a non-life-threatening thing, such as like, you know, when we get allergies out in the spring, I know right now, like my nose is pretty stuffed up because I'm filming this in the middle of April. Um, So I got that watery eyes, itchy skin, redness and stuff like that because you're like, oh, the trees are coming for me. Um, So the redness, the sneezing, the running nose, the hives and stuff like that. Generally, these things are going to be non-life-threatening because there's no respiratory involvement. Now, with those kind of things, we're just saying, hey, man, you got any allergy medication on you? Might be time to take that or something along those lines. If they're like, oh, yeah, I can't see. My eyes are all watery. That, that's just a Benadryl or a Claritin or something like that kind of situation. Um, if they're not able to breathe, 
and there's any sort of respiratory involvement. So if the question is asking you anything about respiratory involvement, we're calling 911. So respiratory involvement would include like wheezing, shortness of breath, any sort of difficulty speaking or swallowing, the airway starting to tighten. Um, you're seeing those chest tightening, stuff like that. You might also see like nausea, vomiting. Again, if we're seeing nausea and vomiting, we're, we're getting concerned because we don't want people getting dehydrated. And then any sort of passing out or changing in levels of consciousness, we're definitely like, oh man, this is not good. So... In that case, what are we doing? Um, any sort of severe life-threatening things that I just previously mentioned, we are calling EMS services, calling 911. We're being like, this is not good. Let's see what's going on. So first step is to remove the source of the allergic reaction, whatever it is that's causing it. We want to get this person away from it as soon as possible. So like if it was latex, take off the gloves or something like that, like get, get whatever is causing them to be in allergy distress away from them if it's something like they had a they didn't realize that um one of the therapists had just had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or whatever and um they're allergic to peanuts and just the therapist being near them with their peanut -y breath was enough to start having them go into anaphylactic shock this happened to one of my friends that i used to row with somebody was just like near his face and he's like i can't breathe now Something like that, we're seeing if they have an EpiPen and we're going to have the patient self-administer if they're able to, if the patient's unconscious and we need to administer the EpiPen, here is what an EpiPen looks like, everybody. Notice that the orange end says needle end. That is the side that we're going to inject into the patient. Do not put your thumb up here. Do not put your thumb down here. We are going to hold it like how I hold this can here right on the side and jam it into their thigh. And I mean, jam it. So there's practice EpiPens that they use for all of these trainings. Definitely practice with one um, and just jam it into their leg, get it really in there, hold that for about five seconds. And that's how we're going to administer an EpiPen. Everyone should know how to use one. It's very important. My brother has a practice one that we can use. So yeah, very important. So we want to make sure we can administer the EpiPen or if the patient is not having any sort of respiratory involvement. So if there's no tightening of the airway or anything like that, we could tell them like, take your like Benadryl or something like that. If it's like they're breaking out hives and stuff like that. Um, then we would tell them to just like take a Benadryl if you're able to see if that kind of helps calm down your symptoms if they had hives and stuff. But if they have an EpiPen to administer the EpiPen, if their airway closes completely, we're starting CPR. So then we can continue to have oxygen circulate around the body. And we're, as we said before, if we're having a severe thing, first step is call 911. So hopefully if we're getting to the point where we're like, oh crap, they need CPR, 911 has been called and they're on the way at the very least. So that's what's going on with allergic reaction. So if we're, if we're, if we can't breathe, we're going to anaphylactic shock we're going to call 911. If we just got some like redness and highs and stuff like that, we're just taking a Benadryl. So our beautiful EpiPen. Fracture. So what are we doing when we have a fracture? And this is like if somebody literally like slips and falls and like breaks their like arm or something like that. Um, or for some reason they have some sort of fracture in general, randomly at the clinic. I don't know. Um, but if we're encountering a fracture in the clinic, what we would see is bruising, swelling, visible deformity. Sometimes it's so obvious that it's an open fracture and the bone's sticking out, but like sometimes you can't really tell at first. Maybe it could be a patient, they stepped off the step really weird and fractured their like 
uh, fifth met head or something like that. So um, we'll notice pain and tenderness and then guarding may be present. So just, they're not really moving at very limited range of motion, kind of like holding it in or something like that. They're really trying not to move it. What do we do? We are not physicians. We are not orthopedic or emergency medicine physicians. We are not going to realign the bone. We are going to keep it. We're going to help splint it. That's what we're going to do, but we're not putting the bone back in place. That is not in our paycheck. We don't get paid for that. We're not qualified to do that. We're not doing that. Um, if there's any sort of spinal involvement, so if we have a spinal cord injury kind of thing going on, um, well, that's why we wouldn't want to move them because if they broke uh, like vertebrae or something like that, we are not going to move them. We're going to um, do the, like I say, if it was a pool thing or something like that, the backboarding and stuff like that, we're going to make sure their spine is not moving at all because we don't accidentally want to be trying to help them move them and then cause them to be paralyzed because there's a fracture in their spine. So any sort of um, spinal involvement, we're immediately calling 911. Let's say it's somebody's foot or something like that and they fracture their foot. Um, we can probably get away with just having them go to the ER themselves or something like that. If there's any sort of like blood sensation problems, stuff like that, we're calling um, and like the patient can't get themselves to the hospital, we're calling 911. So spinal involvement or patient physically can't get to the hospital, 911. Um, we're going to check blood flow and sensation to make sure that that's not becoming wacky or anything like that. We want to make sure that the patient can still feel things, has still blood flow into the area because the last thing we want is for them to end up like losing a toe or something like that because they fractured their tibia. Like we, we don't want that to happen. Um, so if they're, and so what we'll do if possible, find something to splint it with. So like pieces of wood, uh, um, something just sturdy and stable. That's just going to be able to keep everything in place and keep it from moving. Cause the last thing we want is to further fracture or damage the surrounding soft tissue. And so we're just trying to keep the bone from moving further. And if it's an open fracture, something along those lines, we're covering the opening with a sterile dressing to make sure that it's not, it's exposed to the elements. So then we're not putting them at risk for infection. We're immobile the joint, keeping them from going anywhere. And we're sending them to the ER once we've stabilized them. Honestly, we could just call and say, yo, we got somebody with a fracture coming in, just let you know. Um, and all of these are going to be a lot of fun to document afterwards. So have fun with that with this incident reports. Autonomic dysreflexia. This is one that hundred percent will show up on the NPTE. Uh, so pay attention if you started to doze off with this one. Uh, autonomic dysreflexia, what does it look like? The biggest thing to understand about autonomic dysreflexia is it's a sharp increase in blood pressure. I'm talking like a lot, like they go from like baseline 120 over 80 to like 200 over like 120, like it's crazy. Um, and this is what happens with individuals who have a spinal cord injury at the T6 level or higher. So T as in taco six or above. So um, take note of that occurs like any question that shows up says patient has a C7 age of scale, a spinal cord. Injury. Just think that, okay, this could be autonomic dysreflexia. Keep it in the back of your mind as you're reading the rest of the question. So this sharp increase in blood pressure, it's going to occur due to the fact that there's some sort of noxious stimuli going on. So most of the time, I don't know why it says kind of kinked catheter. So there's like a, a kink in the catheter that's causing a block of urine flow. Any sort of tight clothing would also cause that. Um, patient would exhibit some severe, severe hypertension. Um, and that's kind of what I said with the blood pressure shooting through the roof. Um, they'll have usually like, they'll be sweating like a lot. Like it's like they're soaking through their sheets. So you're like, whoa, bro, what's up? And that'll cause like goosebumps. Their heart rate's going to tank because their blood pressure spiking up. 
Um, they're going to have like nausea and they're going to have a headache and stuff like that. And that's due to the increase in blood pressure. Um, and sometimes they'll just look like they have this red blotchy, like discoloration to their skin as well. That could also be something that happens. So here's what we do. And you have to follow the steps in this order because the boards cares about this order. And it's always, what should you do first? The first thing we do with autonomic dysreflexia is we sit the patient up. So think that this is the opposite of what we would do with orthostatic hypertension. Orthostatic hypertension, we'd lay them down. Autonomic dysreflexia, we sit them up. Always sit them up first. First, we're setting them up. The first thing we do is we sit them up. We sit them up. Then we check and see what's going on. Look for the catheter, see if it's like kinked or something like that. That'll be just checking for what's the noxious stimuli. Is there like something that's like pinching you somewhere or something like that that you can't feel or whatnot? Is it that like your toe is like, like messed up or something like that? Is it your clothes, your stockings are too tight and it's hurting you? Like what's going on? After we sit them up, then we figure out what's going on. So sit up, check it out. That's kind of what's going on. Then if it is the catheter or something and you unkink it, see how their vitals respond to it. And then you're contacting nursing regardless afterwards to make sure they come in and check and make sure, do their assessment and make sure everything's okay before moving forward because this is a medical emergency. You do not want blood pressure spiking that high because it could be at risk of brain bleeds, um, aneurysms, you guys know hypertension is going to mess everything up. So we don't want that. So step one, sit them up. Step two, check and see if the catheter is kinked or something along those lines. That's the biggest one that they like to use as the example. It's also the most common reason this would happen. And then three, contact nursing. Orthostatic hypotension, on the other hand, is going to be where there's a sharp drop in blood pressure. So this is with sitting up or standing or positional changes. I'm sure you had your patient like stand up before and they're like, whoa, hold up. Give me a second. I'm seeing stars. And then they're like, okay, I'm good. So it's going to look like they're going to get like lightheaded, dizziness, syncope kind of episodes going on, any sort of nausea and confusion. They'll start feeling like weak and stuff like that. So the biggest thing that happens, they, this is pretty much exactly what happened. They get up and they're like, whoa. They're like kind of like blurred vision. They're sitting there for a second. They're like, give me a moment. Give me a moment. And if that moment isn't given, giving them that moment doesn't do the thing. And we're going to sit them down. So remember, they could be having these episodes because the patient could be dehydrated. That could be one of the big ones because they're having a drop in blood volume. So there's not enough like fluid and water in the plasma. So we're, we're decreasing in um, our like blood pressure because of that. Or they could be on certain medications. So certain medications that would cause a response like this would be like ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, diuretics, pretty much all of your like blood pressure meds. They're trying to decrease your blood pressure. They might accidentally overshoot and have you go into orthostatic hypotension. So what are we doing? So the patient's having this thing where they're like, whoa, man, I'm, I'm seeing stars. You're like, okay, we're sitting down. We're laying back down. You're going to elevate their legs. So this is just so then we can get blood flowing back towards the heart and flowing back ultimately towards the head. So then we don't have all these consciousness problems. So we're just getting some blood up to the brain. That's kind of what's going on. So lay them down, elevate their legs. And then you're going to monitor their blood pressure. So in the future, make sure we're monitoring blood pressure with positional changes. If the blood pressure drops more than like 20 um, points or millimeters of mercury, we're going to kind of like slowly introduce sitting up. So maybe they'll go from supine to like a semi-fowler's to like a fowler's position. We're just going to slowly work on um, those positional changes to avoid orthostatic hypotension because the last thing you want is to stand this patient up with this and then they go right down to the floor then they could like fracture their hip or something so that's not what we want with this person so orthostatic hypotension lay them down elevate their legs that's kind of what's going on with this patient so all right guys simple question 
A physical therapist assistant is assisting a patient with completing terminal knee extension with a TheraBand wrapped around their leg. The patient, suddenly, the patient suddenly begins to complain of itchiness behind their knee and upon further investigation, informs the therapist that they are allergic to latex. I love when patients give me this information much later when I should have needed it earlier. What should the therapist do first? One, call emergency services. Two, inform the patient to take a Benadryl. Three, remove TheraBand from patient. Or four, put a towel between TheraBand and skin so that the band does not come in contact with the leg. So I'll give you guys a second to think about that. Again, we have our patient who's complaining of itchiness behind their knee and is allergic to latex. So what are we doing first? All right, guys. So the first thing we're doing is removing the TheraBand from the patient. So they got itchiness behind their leg. It's bad. Let's, let's get the TheraBand off first. That should be our first step. So a lot of times the boards is going to throw you off meaning like, what should I do first? And they'll give you a bunch, like all of these answers could be correct. Like we could need to call emergency services if they start having respiratory involvement. There's nothing in this that says that there's any respiratory involvement. The only thing that we're seeing is itchiness behind their knee and that they're allergic to latex. And so they're itching. There's no respiratory involvement. Remember, if there's no respiratory involvement, we're not calling EMS services. We're monitoring the patient, seeing if we can just have, just if we remove the stimulus, is that enough? So first thing we do is remove the stimulus because that could literally just be enough that the itchiness and everything goes away. I had a patient, she regretted to inform me she was allergic to latex. I put a TheraBand around her legs and she's like, oh, I'm allergic. And literally she pulled it off herself because I was like, oh my gosh, I could have done that for you. Like, don't touch it. And then her hands were like all red and stuff like that. So we just avoided the latex. And then by the end of the session, they were fine. So it could be something like that. Um, uh, you would need like, and then let's say the patient, they're having this itchiness. It's like getting kind of hives and everything. You couldn't tell them that, Hey, if you have any Benadryl on you, does that like usually work in the fast? Has your physician ever like suggested that to you? Half of them, if they're breaking out in hives, because something they're less like, oh, I need a Benadryl, whatever. Uh, I'm allergic to lobster and some moxifloxacin. It's an antibiotic. And if I come in contact with lobster in a meal or something like that, usually Benadryl is good enough. I don't have any respiratory involvement. It's just hives and stuff like that. So my physician has told me to do that. So that might just be the solution. They might need to do that. But since this question is asking, what do we do first? We're removing the TheraBand from the patient. Now we could theoretically put a towel between the TheraBand and the skin. So it doesn't come in contact that could work, or we could just put it over top of their uh, clothing or something like that. But generally if someone's allergic to something, we're kind of probably going to direct them more towards like the cable column or something like that, something else, some other form of, um, quad strengthening that doesn't involve a TheraBand. So um, if you're tight for space and things, maybe that's an okay idea, but really I wouldn't say that that's that great of an idea for number four. So I would get rid of that completely. So first thing we're doing in this, removing the TheraBand from the patient. There's no respiratory involvement that could just be enough for them. So hope that this was helpful in explaining some emerging conditions. Remember the boards is a safety test and they just wanna make sure they know what to do first, then what to do second, what are the steps you do when you encounter one of these situations? All right, guys, reach out to me if you have any questions. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the PTA Elevation Podcast. We look forward to continually serving you as you embark on your journey towards becoming a licensed physical therapist assistant. We thank you for your continued support and we'll see you in the next episode.